Good morning, Faith Church. My name is Courtney, and I'm one of the pastors here. I hope you guys enjoyed your extra night of, or night of sleep. That'd be amazing. Uh, extra hour of sleep. Uh, real quick, to uh, let you guys know, I'm a little bit, like, anxious walking on stage. A little bit of uh, trauma from that question that was just up there of what's your worst haircut. Mine was when I was in fifth grade. I was very much a tomboy, and I had convinced my mom to let me cut my hair short, like a boy cut. As you can see, I have very curly hair. Uh, the actual cut wasn't horrible, but it was not long after I got it done that I remember getting called young man multiple times and being like, okay, maybe I'm not a fan of this. The worst part was the growing it back out stage, and it was before I had discovered hair product. I looked like a Q-tip, like just a full-blown, even one that's been like pushed out. We actually have a picture because you guys need to appreciate this. Uh-huh. I'm the one on the, that side. Uh, yeah. That with the, the cool look and the cool shoes. Yeah. Uh, so this was even before I'd fully grown out. So there you go. You can appreciate my personal worst haircut, and that's not even as bad as it got. Uh, it hit full acne with the growing out. It was bad. So anyway, there you go. Uh, so we are kicking off, well, actually, last week we kicked off a series called uh, Something Deeper, A Radical Look at Community. And I was thinking through, what different communities do I have in my life? And uh, those of you that have been at Faith Church for a little bit, you hear me talk about golf nearly every time I'm on stage. It pops up some way or another, probably because it's been summer and I love golf. Uh, so that is absolutely one of my communities. But one of the things you guys don't know is I also love just sports in general. If I can play it, I'm in. So I also play pickleball and volleyball too. And pickleball in particular, is really interesting because I'm in this group of like 20 people that we, we text of like, try to get a rotation going and all this stuff. I think I'm the youngest by a good 20 years in my group of pickleball players. Uh, it's fun, I have a blast with these people. And I've often caught myself going, huh, I don't really fit here, but we have a great time. And these are people I would normally not rub shoulders with at all. Like, we are in very different stages of life. We're in different, like, beliefs, different everything. And even the same thing with golf. One of my favorite things that I do with golf is a Tuesday morning summer thing that we do where it's golf club versus golf club, where we have, like, 110 ladies that get together five times over the summer, and we just go to different courses, and we compete against each other. But the cool thing is you get partnered up with people not from your club, so I have, have to sit in a golf cart for two hours with somebody that I've never met before. And I absolutely love it. And again, it's a Tuesday morning thing. So once again, I'm one of the youngest people in the group. But I like this is the thing that I won't give up because I love being able to sit and have a conversation with somebody that I have very different religious views with, different political views, different views on just life in general. But I love it. And the thing that brings us together is golf. Or with pickleball, what brings us together is pickleball. And yet, we, so we can have this community in spite of our differences. So today, we are going to dive into a little bit of what does that look like in community? And how, does we, how do we as a church show community? And what is our thing in common? So I kind of titled this uh, sermon, I titled it Courage in Community, Part 2. Uh, Nate, Nate last week preached, and he did Courage and Community, and so I was like, I need to come up with a great title, 
And so here you go. This is what I got. Uh, you'll see in a little bit, it actually is very much a continuation of his sermon from last week. Uh, before we dive into today's passage, we've been working through the book of Acts, and we've been in it for probably like seven weeks now, eight weeks. And uh, I want to set the stage a little bit of the last few weeks of where we're at because it sets up the story for today. So we've been talking about two guys, Peter and John. They were two disciples of Jesus. And this is now after Jesus has gone back to heaven, the Holy Spirit's come, Pentecost, all that stuff has happened. And Peter and John one day are walking into the temple and they stop at the outer courts and there's somebody there begging and the guy can't walk and he's not been able to walk his entire life. It says, the Bible tells us he's 40 years old. So his whole life, he's not been able to walk, and he's been sitting at these gates for probably majority of that time. And so Peter and John are walking by, and whatever the Holy Spirit hits Peter, and he suddenly is like, I need to stop and talk to this guy. So he walks by, he looks at him, he says, silver and gold have I not, but what I do have I give to you, the, give to you in the name of Jesus. And the guy stands up, leaps, runs away, and they're like, whoa, what just happened? Well, word gets out, a bunch of Jewish people come flooding to the temple, and they're like, what happened? Peter gets up, he gives a sermon, a full gospel presentation, and then word gets to the high-up leaders, the religious leaders of the Jewish people, and they are not happy about this. Remember, these are the people that had Jesus killed. And so Peter and John are taken to the Sanhedrin, the head of the Jewish religious group. And so they're taken to them, they stay the night in jail, and then they have to go stand basically in court with them. And they tell them, the leaders tell them, you cannot keep preaching about Jesus. You can't do that. And Peter and John kind of look at them and are like, that's cute. Like, we're, we're still going to do it anyway. And they, it says, the Bible says they were full of courage. And so as they continue to have this, like, discussion, the Sanhedrin realized we actually have nothing on these guys. Like, we don't have anything we can hold them for. And so they're like, all right, I guess you can go on your way. So that's where today's passage, passage picks up, is Peter and John have been released, and they head back to their people. So I'm going to read you the passage as a whole, and then we're going to go back and dig through it a little bit verse by verse, all right? So here you go. This is Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 23. On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices together in prayer to God. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father, David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up, and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. Now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So here we have like eight verses 
of where they stopped and they prayed. So if you can picture this, Peter and John come back. These people have no clue what's going on. And it says that they went back to their people. And we learned a few weeks ago that a bunch of Jewish people have started uh, believing in Jesus, that even thousands. Now, this isn't believed that we're talking about that. This isn't like a huge multitude of people. It's believed that this is kind of like Peter and John's smaller group, okay? Their small group of believers can maybe say like their smaller church. So they go back and they're like, hey guys, you won't believe what happened. And they tell the whole story, starting with the healing of the guy, and then the preaching, and then going to jail for a night, and then standing in front of the Sanhedrin, and being told, you cannot preach anymore, and then being released. And what I love is the response of the people. Their immediate response is to come together and to pray. They raise their voices together in prayer. I love that. Together, they're like, you know what? That was an incredible story. Like, whoa, let's pray. And so it's kind of this idea of in unity and in harmony, they prayed together. And not so much of like they all were on the exact same page and they said the exact same thing in unison the entire time. That's not what happened, most likely. It was likely that their hearts were so much as one that one person prayed, but they were all together in it. Does that make sense? They were all feeling the same thing and saying, yes, this is, we're here for it. So I want to break down this prayer into two specific things that I saw that were the most important things for me. The first one is they reflect on who God is. They reflect on who God is. We see right away in the prayer, they started off with saying, Sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Sovereign Lord. They immediately started off with saying, God you are all-powerful. Sovereign there is absolute power. What I find interesting in the Greek is that word for sovereign that's used here is actually the word that was used for Caesar when they had to refer to him. It was that. So it's like the Christians have taken this kind of like, no, no, we're not going to call Caesar that. That is reserved just for God because he is absolute power. Only him. And then they go on to say that he created the heavens and the earth, that he is the creator, which is saying that he is more powerful than the creation, right? If he's the creator, he's more powerful than anybody on earth. And so they start off with that saying, God, you are sovereign. You are the ruler. You are above everything. You are absolute power. And then they move into kind of a callback to the Old Testament. They do a callback to King David. Uh, And David wrote in Psalm 2, And he wrote a psalm and a passage that they quote here. David wrote, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed one. So what King David's doing here is he's basically saying like, why? Why do people keep trying to take God down? Why are they doing this? He even says they're doing it in vain. One commentary that I read, when it said that why do people rage against the Lord, that word rage, they use the imagery of a horse when it's bridled. Is that the right word? I think it is. Uh, It's got the reins on it. I'm not a horse person. Uh, But I, I can get this image. You put the reins on it, and the horse starts going crazy. Like it's moving its head, it's neighing, it's going crazy. And yet, 
when the rider has the reins, the horse submits. Can you guys picture that? That's kind of what's saying here is like when the rulers and people try to rise up against God, they've got this rage, but really God's in control. He has the reins. He's bringing them back. And actually, David continues to write in Psalm 2 where he even mentions like the Lord sees them and he laughs because it's very much this like I, he knows that he is in control and yet people still continue to rise up against them. The prayer continues. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So then they move in their prayer from King David in the Old Testament to their current day, which was the death of Jesus. And Pontius Pilate and Herod kind of conspiring together and the Jewish leaders and resulting in Jesus being killed. And so we look at that and I'm sure they even thought like, yeah, we got him. We got this Jesus guy. We killed him. But even in their prayer, they're like, but God, you were in control. It was your will because Jesus fulfilled all the prophecies of the Old Testament. We see that looking back now. God still was in ultimate control. So what I love about the start of their prayer is that they are very much like, God, you have absolute power. You are amazing. And you are the God who created the world in Genesis. And you are the God who parted the Red Sea with Moses. You are the God who King David worshipped. You are the God of the minor prophets. You are the God even through the exile of the Jewish people. When they didn't even have a home, he was still with them. And you are the God that is Jesus. And that he is the same from Genesis to their day, and even now. And I love that, that you're so taken up by God. You are sovereign. You are in absolute control. The second thing that I see in their prayer is their ask. So they start with the sovereignty of God, and then they finally get to like their prayer and their ask. Like, What are they asking God for? What's the purpose of this prayer? Let's take a look. They said, now, Lord, Consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Do you see their ask there? Their ask isn't to take away what's going on. They're just now starting to feel the very, very beginnings of some persecution. Up to this point, the church hasn't really experienced any persecution yet. And even this is not really bad yet. They've just been told, hey, we don't like you preaching about Jesus. We'll see in Acts later, chapters 8 and beyond, the persecution is about to get real, real. But this is kind of the beginning part where they're just starting to feel some angst of kind of like, oh, this could get a little rough. And so instead of asking God to remove the struggle or to remove the trial, to remove the difficult thing from them, they say, give us great boldness. In the midst of it, give us great boldness. And great boldness here means in the Greek, freedom in speaking, unreservedness in speech. So what they're saying is, God, give us freedom in our speech. Let us not get in the way. Let our humanness not get in the way. Give us complete freedom in our speech, that it's all you, that we have all the boldness to just say what we need to say and be who we need to be. 
with no reservation. What an incredible ask. I know if it was me, I'd be like, yeah, if you could just take that hard part away, that'd be great. And then we can just go about our lives as usual. Instead, they say, give us great boldness. Help us engage this and do it well through you and your power and your sovereignty. And then we see God's reply. After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. So we see that the place itself shook. And we see that in the Old Testament and even still in the New Testament, and you'll see it again in Acts. When God's presence is there, a lot of times you see it with wind or even an actual earthquake. So God's response to their prayer and their ask is, I'm here. I'm here with you. I hear you. I see you. I'm actually here with you. And he gave them the Holy Spirit, and he granted their request. And they went out with boldness and continued to preach. Which brings me to our so what. Now, some of you that are normally faith church people are going, whoa, look at the time. That was the best sermon ever. We were almost done. Uh, hang with me. It's not over yet. Uh, uh, we still have a ways to go. But I wanted to spend some time in this one. And this is going to be a little difficult for me. So hang with me on this. I have to grab my security blanket. Um, last week, the reason that I called this uh, Courage and Community Part 2 is because last week, Pastor Nate uh, did a message. And it was probably the most beautiful thing that I've ever seen in a church building. Um, if you, some of you were here, some of you were not. So I'm going to try to recap it a little bit as best as I can. Um, Pastor Nate sat up here, and he talked about courage. It was in light of Peter and John standing before the Sanhedrin. But he talked about courage, and what courage looks like is real authenticity of being real and being vulnerable. And the definition of courage uh, is by uh, Brene Brown. Mm -hmm. Courage starts with showing up and letting ourselves be seen. Showing up and letting ourselves be seen. And Nate had us sitting in this last week. Uh, Brene Brown, by the way, is a researcher. She is a professor, but a researcher, and she has written multiple books. And she has done studies and studies on vulnerability and courage. And I actually found out she is, for the most part, a secular person. But I actually found an interview where she has come back to her faith because of her research and vulnerability and realizing that authenticity breeds community and that you find that with Jesus. It's a very cool thing, side note there. So we were talking about this courage, and Nate sat up here, and he shared from his heart. And he set the tone of vulnerability. And then he opened it up to the church community with the microphone, which is always a little bit scary. Not going to lie to you guys. <laughs> uh, but it was absolutely beautiful. We heard things from people who have beat cancer to broken marriages to people who have spent time in jail to addictions to somebody who was even just like had to have courage just to come to church that day and how God was in it through it all. It was one of the most beautiful moments. And I actually sat back there in that corner and I could not move. I, we did communion. I couldn't even get up to get communion. I just sat in that 
and was going, wow. To be honest, I was kind of, part of me was wanting to do my sermon today right after that one because we had this moment of raw vulnerability in our body. And it just seems so right to continue it with prayer, right? Just to be like, oh, let's pray together now. But I knew you guys would be like, seriously, a two-hour service. Let's get out of here, right? <laughs> but what I was challenged on was this idea of vulnerability. And I was sitting there, and even sitting back there, watching this realness. And like I said, I, I've never seen it in a church building before. And while I was sitting there, I heard the Holy Spirit going, you're sharing too, next week. So here I am. Uh, the prayer that the, the church body that we just read through, uh, they asked for great boldness. In the message version of the Bible, here's how Eugene Peterson, the writer, he, this is how he, he defined it. He said, give your servants fearless confidence. Fearless confidence. And that one hit me. I, this idea of fearless. I have so much fear. Now, Brene Brown, the person that I talked about, she defines confidence as the sense of certainty in our own abilities. Okay, that makes sense, right? A sense of certainty in our own abilities. What I want to define as fearless confidence, maybe, is the sense of certainty in who God is. Fearless confidence is the sense of certainty in who God is. And as I was telling you guys, I, I'm realizing I have fear. And I, it, some of you have known me that are sitting in this room for 10 years or more. Um, and if you've known me for that long, you could ask anybody who's known me for a long period of time. And they'll tell you that I am very much a, like, steady Eddie. Like, I'm a rock is a word that's often put out there. I hold my emotions in. I just kind of am. I don't feel a lot. I don't show a lot. I'll listen, but I don't often, like, let it out. And in the last year and a half, I've been challenged in this culture and in this community to practice vulnerability. And it's been rough, if I'm being honest with you. Uh, but it's been so good at the same time. And as a process, as a result, I have been in therapy for the last six-ish months. Now, if you were here last week, this now makes two pastors that have now admitted that they're in therapy. Uh, it's Kirk's fault. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's not Kirk's fault. Uh, it, it's, it's actually a beautiful thing to be able to be in a place where we can realize yeah, we're all in this together. Like we have our own struggles and our own issues. And I can tell you, Pastor Nate and I have some similar like experiences, different stories, but some similar things that we are working through. And for me, one, when I, as I've been talking with my therapist, he keeps pushing me on this idea of anxiety. I don't do that. I don't have anxiety. Why are you telling me that? For those of you that know the Enneagram, I am an Enneagram 7. I like fun. I like to be happy. I like joy. Those are fun emotions. Anything beyond that, anything in the negative, sadness, grief, anger, 
I don't like that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that. I avoid it at all costs. And my therapist has been pushing me and going, you have anxiety. You have fear. I actually looked at him this past Monday in my last session, and I looked him right in the eyes and said, you suck. <laughs> and he was like, yep. <laughs> but it's because I don't want to engage this. And yet, here I am. And I am finally to the point, and I'm still, this is still very raw, and I'm still processing it. I'm realizing how much fear I actually have in my life. It holds me back. It completely enables me at times. What if I do the wrong thing? What if I say the wrong thing? To be honest, anybody who's close to me now knows that preaching weeks are horrible for me. Horrible. Because what if I get this wrong? What if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? What if you guys don't like me? Uh, it's just, it's unbelievable. I have nightmares. I have everything. And yet, I know what gets me through is the power of Jesus. I can look to him and have hope. I so badly want to take those fears and hold them in my hand and hold them tight. And be like, yeah, I'll be open and honest and vulnerable with you, God, but not in this. I can't admit these things. And yet fearless confidence is saying, here you go, God. This is me. This is all of me. My fears, my flaws, all of it. It is that hope in him. And what gets me is where would my life be without that? If I didn't have that knowledge of God is so sovereign that he is who he was in Genesis and in the time of David to now, that he is constant, he is absolute power, that he is so much bigger than anything, any feeling, any emotion, any experience, that he is so much more. That if I didn't have that hope, if I didn't have that, I can't even fathom how miserable my life would be. So what we're going to do today is we're gonna end service a little different. We're talking a little bit about radical community. And so I want to challenge us to spend some time in prayer. And we've been talking about in the book of Acts that there's, uh, just in the Bible in general, there's prescriptive and there's descriptive. Things that are just describing what's happening and also things that are, hey, this is what we need to do. We need to take action on these. For the most part, Acts is a descriptive book. This prayer is more descriptive. Hey, this is what happened to them. But I think there are some solid truths to come out of this. And so I'm going to ask you all to show some courage, to show some fearless confidence. How I want to end today is just in a time of corporate prayer. Just uh, this how we're going to close this out. Uh, so if you could all stand. I'm going to read, the first slide is me kind of reading a charge or kind of like a prayer or encouragement over us all. And then the second slide, we're just going to read together. All right, so here we go. Just kidding. Do not look forward to what may happen tomorrow. The same everlasting Father who cares for you today will take care of you tomorrow and every day. 
Either he will shield you from suffering or he will give you unfailing strength to bear it. Be at peace then. Have confidence in him. Give all your anxious thoughts and imaginations to him and say continually, the Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart has trusted in him and I am helped. He is not only with me, but in me and I in him. Now join me with this. Dear God, we thank you for the power of your word and your presence over our lives. We thank you that no weapon formed against us will prosper. For greater are you who is in us than he who is in the world. Give us unity as your children and a fearless confidence in you. Nothing is impossible with you. You are loving and gracious, full of mercy and might. Thank you for being our defender and strong tower, our refuge and our strength. You fight for us today, and in our weakness, you make us strong. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. I love you guys. Have a great week. Go in grace and peace.